Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Through the magic of animation, anything is possible. You can have a princess sing and dance, and you can have monsters go boogoo gaga. You can have cats do jazz dancing. And then you can have dogs do jazz dancing. <laughs> and then you can have more princesses. And then you can single-handedly end the tradition of 2D animation with your fucked up Titanic movie. <laughs> this week we're talking about Don Bluth, the OG legend of the acetate cell. I am your fluidly animated wizard, Jake Young. And I'm your dead dog bruiser, Holden <laughs> McNeely. And yes, today, we when we talked about... Okay, first of all, we got to throw this out there. We got to immediately start with this. This is another Patreon funded episode uh, and it's funded by Wesley Franks the third and uh, thank you so much Wesley honestly I want to thank you because I wasn't even aware of I had to ask Jake who Don Bluth was and then very quickly look up a quick <laughs> Wikipedia and then realize he made like so many films that I watched as a kid and fucking loved and is was such a huge part of my childhood and had no idea just because I didn't know his name because I'm bad with names uh, because his name wasn't something like Walt Disney or... Um, Lord knows they tried, though. You know, Lord Vader or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Lord so I, Vader's animated movies were too pornographic <laughs> for the children and honestly, the fact that you had access to those laser discs is really <laughs> saying something. Um, and so for Wesley here, he also, the promotion part of that uh, is his Twitter. Stream the Shred Pirate Roberts. Um, it's a laid back variety stream, um, and he just started out doing it. He's been going on for a while now because he, he donated for this episode oh, quite a while back. We're trying to catch up on some of the older ones, and uh, yeah, Wesley, you're you're the best. And he always uh, auto hosts me on my Twitch stream, and uh, he's very he's supportive. a real monster in the chat, and he's up in the chat throwing them bits. <laughs> um, it, he's awesome. So just thank you so much, man. Because honestly, this week was. A, a fucking blast to research and do. Uh, I absolutely just had such a great time because not only is this the story about um, all of these uh, movies that uh, played such a big part of my childhood, it's also this crazy story about the, you know, essentially the downfall of Disney for for a few years about um, the rise of like kind of other other. Uh, 
Dogs in the Fight when it came to that big summer um, animation film release. You know what I mean? It has it, it's it's tied to old Disney and then moving into new Disney. It's it's um, also about yeah animation uh, style, production style, approach, attack. Uh, and, and we have a lot of opinion. Jake has a ton of opinions. Jake was like, hi, I'm Mr. Opinions today. And I was like, I don't know if I want to talk to Mr. Opinions today. I want to talk to Jake, I think. And Jake is like, no, dude. And he showed me his, his piece. He showed me a gun. And I was like, whoa, Jake. Well, this is it's a- just a 22, you pussy. <laughs> Jesus, it couldn't even kill Reagan. And that guy was old as hell. I was like, that, the safety better be on that. And then he. I ripped it off with tweezers <laughs> as soon as I bought it. Um, now, hold on. This is. It's more so than even the individual movies. What really this yes. like shook me about Don Bluth is, I mean, here's the thing. His uh, oeuvre has kind of survived even beyond us like old fucks because the burgeoning genre of YouTube and internet like film critics absolutely tore this guy's movies apart. Like the entire channel awesome nostalgia critic like Empire was built on these riffs on Don Bluth movies and isolating all the tropes surrounding them, the big lipped alligator moments and all that. Um, <laughs> so his work has affected way more beyond than just the eighties and nineties kids. Oh, very much so. Uh, and more importantly than that, what really shook me is that his story is about craft. Yes. His story is about knowledge that uh, has been built up over generations that through technology sometimes just kind of doesn't, get preserved that kind of just outlives its purpose and how dedicated someone can be to the unique uh just qualities of a craft and refuse to let it die just the feel of his films spoke to people uh and and it came at a perfect time actually because when his movies were coming out you had a lot of baby boomers who were nostalgic for snow white and sleeping beauty and those that feel of those old films and they were bringing their kids to the theater and so they were loving going out and seeing american tale and uh land before time we should mention a couple of his movies really quick in case no one does, uh, people out oh, there don't didn't. know uh, who Don Bluth is. Land Before Time, American Tale, um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Uh, those those are really kind Anastasia. of the, Anastasia, his big comeback, which we'll talk about. And of course, this is the weird one that kind of uh, like has survived even longer than the rest of these movies. The Dragon's Lair and Space Ace Laserdisc arcade games. Yeah, now has, they're on. They're on like mobile now and everything. They're too, on everything, which is super crazy. Like I got Dragon's Lair on my phone because I looked over and I saw a dude playing it on his phone, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, I remember that game!" I remember it was like so hard to find it in the arcade. It was such a quarter eater because you just had to memorize everything. It was especially, recently featured in Stranger Things. Oh, especially by the time we were in arcades, because those machines were notoriously hard to maintain. I love that he's connected to gaming in this like profound way. It's really amazing that you you have this guy who is known partly for his like classical look, his like golden era th- throwback feeling uh, cinema films, and he's also just like making huge breakthroughs when it comes to video game creation, especially back then. Even though it didn't quite take hold like the laserdisc style of making games, he made something unique and something very forward thinking. At the same time, that he's kind of looking back and trying to preserve this old animation style, and it's kind of cool what you said just now that um, 
animation's almost like a, a family business kind of thing, you know, like a cobbler or something. And, and, it, and it's this knowledge that's passed down over mm -hmm. generations and generations. And that's really how he treated animation uh, and uh, the whole business and everything. He has uh, built kind of a mini empire for himself, teaching classes and offering educational materials. Yes. And uh, I watched cool. one of his like uh, videos that you can find on YouTube. And I remember the spark. And at this point, he must have been in his late 70s, early 80s. He's I think he's 81 right now uh talking about how he was like in he was talking to an old disney animator i don't know if it was one of the legendary nine old men and like after all these years he was like how the hell did you do the water effect in fantasia with the buckets because that was like the most pristine wet looking water i've ever seen in an animated film and like the guy was like eh, we used a clear blue lacquer and like as if he was a child again, sparkles in his eyes being like, of course, lacquer. Why didn't I think of that? Like, he's delighted with yeah. this very analog. It's specifically hand-drawn, hand-inked, hand-painted, hand-photographed cell animation incredibly laborious incredibly costly and, and and involving many many people in order to make a film over years it is it is why it kind of died it, it really is why it died down and it's especially because of the advent of, of television animation where they quickly found out how to cut costs as much as possible to churn out uh, as much product as possible to get the money from from the people and he was fighting really for that to not be the case and to go back to that old time and then of course they found a a solution that sort of met both, I think, halfway between the two with, of course, Pixar and computer animation and all that we'll, kind we'll of get stuff. To, we'll get to that. We'll get is, to that. In a way, it's a we little bit tragic. We will get to that, But audience. our story begins the way a lot of our nerdy uh, dude stories begins. <laughs> in with... a cave, behind a house. <laughs> <laughs> I... Every time someone mentions that as like the funny in joke on this show we've been working on for over a year, I want to rip my own arms off and let the blood just pour out of my body. There was a, uh, you know, it's, I love it. <laughs> it starts with a weird kid in a religious household who imprints on like the one piece of pop culture that actually entertains him. Yeah, his Mormonism is so, I was a shocker right off the bat. Uh, yes. How Mormon is he? He is a distant cousin of Mitt Romney. That's how fucking wow. Mormon he is. And his great-grandfather was Helaman Pratt, who is an early leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which, of course, is also known as the Mormon Church. He was branch president in 1969 at the first Mormon branch in Overton, Nevada. So we're talking about some pretty heavy, high-up, key player Mormon family situations no going on. This diet Mormon. Yeah, he, ain't a, is... he ain't a fuckboy Mormon, as the... <laughs> Uh, Mormons called those Mormons that are he sort of never married. Practicing. Whether or not Don Bluth what is a fuckboy is actually a discussion we should. Actually, I could not find enough research. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he would literally ride his horse to the town movie theater to watch Disney films. That's how that's how Mormon we're talking about right now. Now, this is something you have to understand: is this this child, this child, this Mormon child in Texas. His soul, the soul, like the most powerful thing he ever bore witness to was Snow White. Mm. And if you ever like watch Snow White, there's a lot of like rotoscoping. There's a lot of like the way that they animate like Snow White is this like cheerful, like, I don't know, like puffy, I guess. Just this soft, like flowing creature. Yes. Mixed with that, there's a lot of like fucked up imagery with the evil queen yes. and with the um, mirror, mirror on the wall monster. And on top of that, there is a profound scene of sleeping death 
and sorrow mm. and rebirth. Yes. Which this is the chord of, of my like, I'm just going to fucking put the cards on the table right now. Uh, the intensity of uh, Don Bluth's religious fate made him imprint super hard on how Disney films depicted death and rebirth. Mm. And that is why in all of his movies, there is just some fucking heart ripping, just death and heart and sadness. Yes, for sure. That will always resolve itself. For sure. It's, because it's a kid's, I mean, it's a kid's movie made back then. I, I, at least, I think that they go even harder almost today on these sorts of things sometimes. But yeah, I think he was really one of the first people out there, especially um, around that time, and especially when it came to animated films for children mm -hmm. that was treading this type of water. And that's where he got a lot of accolades too, though, because it was a respect, it felt, that he was showing for his child audience. It's the reason why half the people listening right now have like at least a small handful of Don Bluth gut punches burned into their memories, yep. I feel like is because of this religion Disney uh, connection. I loved, uh, Lexi and I watched Land Before Time last night, and I loved watching Lexi watch it. Because you could just see the kid watching mm. it. You know what I mean? She was just lit up. It was so beautiful. Um, and you could tell she. this was a movie that lived with her in her childhood. And all of its tragedy and all of its... Oh, just everything. Um, and and it's over-the-top uh, cutesiness as well, though, at the same time, which is such a weird mix. Anywho, uh, he said he would, uh, he would go home and copy every Disney book that he found after seeing these movies. He just, like, was at, at such an early age just, just obsessed with recreating these Disney films. Um, he lived on the family farm in Utah at the age of six up through high school, and then he attended Brigham Young University, but just for one year, before he already had a job at Walt Disney Productions. He talks about how he started attending classes and just truly realized that, like, this isn't what he wanted to do. This mm. is, he, like, wrote a letter to his parents and said, I'm sorry, you are wasting your money. And he made a beeline to Anaheim, California, wherever the Disney studios were back then. And uh, according to him, this is an interview he gave on a podcast. He literally showed up. And was like, I would like a job. And they're like, okay, cool. Um, where's your portfolio? And Don Bluth was like, I know what that is. And he didn't. <laughs> he then had to like leave. I was like, I'll get back to you tomorrow. Leave, talk to a friend. The friend's like, oh, it's a collection of drawings to prove your skills. And he just spent the entire night in a hotel, basically winging a portfolio from wow. scratch, showing back up. With this like thing that wasn't even in like a proper case, he said he sandwiched it between just two heavy sheets of paper and got hired on the spot. Wow. There you go. And he was working immediately as an assistant to John Lounsbury for Sleeping Beauty, which has got to be a pretty amazing first gig as an animator's uh, assistant. I mean... Just this classic Disney film. We're in the, you know, this is still, this let me be still technically, you know, golden era of Disney, right? I mean, it's still like oh, yeah, yeah. the golden age. Uh, uh, that's batched in there with uh, Snow White and all of that. And uh, the he, training he, process at Disney is kind of weird. Um, mm. The way they described it back then was you would basically be locked in a room and have to produce like screen test footage just to even prove that you can work on the final movie. So they, oh, wow. they basically like pay you dog shit, keep you locked in a separate area. 
and then you kind of have to emerge like a few weeks later and prove you're worthy. Well, he wasn't there for too long. It was just two years uh, working that gig before he ends up going to Argentina to work on a mission for the Mormons. I mean, it's it's uh, basically it's the Mormon bar mitzvah. Yeah. Is they you get plucked out of your normal life and they send you somewhere to you spread what, the good word. If you want to enjoy a good uh, comedy about that, <laughs> check out Book of Mormon, the musical. Uh, it's, fantastic. It, stuff. Uh, it's that that musical ruined every time I'm on like the New York City subway and you see like those Mormon kids with their yeah. black name tags. I'm just like. I know your little yeah. tricks <laughs> and your secret underwear. Uh, so, yeah, they all, of course, are expected to serve a two year full time proselytizing mission. And his and, and you never know. You never know where you're going to end up going. Uh, that they, 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 You can't choose uh, where you serve or the language in which you will proselytize. So he just happened to get Argentina and uh, you're expected to fund missions yourself with the aid of the family. And so he went off and do- did this. And when he got back, he opened up actually a theater, the Bluth Brothers Theater with his younger brother Fred and occasionally worked for Disney throughout this time uh, on different films. And Now this he, is something mm-hmm. like super key is the way Don Bluth animates, I feel like a lot of times it's very static in a lot of ways. Like it's, I'm sorry, not static, but the way that he kind of um, what's what's in play when in directing a play, what do you call actually how the actors stand blocking. Yeah. The blocking is very similar to two characters in a play. Like it is, it's like, they're always like in motion and doing these big uh, expressions, but the camera like will stay pretty still, especially for uh, like in uh, nowadays where like quick camera cuts are like the rule of the day for Uh children's entertainment. Totally, Totally. So like even, even this weird distraction, was helping him be a better animator. And even later, after he was kind of out of the making animated film game, he uh, he started up another like theater production company in his hometown and really always like, was like a big lover of the theater. And, and even in the 90s, I believe he directed a lot of plays and things. So that's always kind of inherent in his work. Uh, so uh, anyways, he ends up going back to Brigham Young University uh, for a degree in English. And uh, he gets uh, into the animation business full-time working for Filmation in 1967. Now, this is a production company that made animation and live action for TV from 63 to 89, that sort of churning out of the stuff. Also, though, what a fucking callback to an episode (laughs) we recently did. Uh, Filmation is the company that created the live action series called The Ghostbusters in 1975. The Ghost Space Busters in 1975, for which caused uh, a lot of issues for the real Ghostbusters, quote-unquote, and later on in the future once that became a big franchise now that don bluth worked on a show at filmation called the archies doing layouts among other things it was also called the archie show and it centered around of course archie and riverdale uh the first the only reason show there ever was the only reason you need to know about this is because through this show the uh, novelty pop single, Sugar Butter, da 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 da. Oh, honey, honey, dude, da, 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 I'm so happy. I was like, is he gonna really do Sugar you Sugar? You are my candy girl. Let's do and that again. You, got, you, you are, are my candy girl. girl. All right, we'll get her later. Look, and you got me <laughs> wanting you. Like I wrote this was like the only fact I wrote down about the Archies. I'm so happy you brought it up because I was like, oh, he's gonna say something else right now, and then I'll get to say the Sugar Sugar thing. But that is hilarious. Anyways, he works on that. It probably wasn't the happiest there because, again, this really was the era uh, that kind of affected Disney films almost for the negative or at least the outlook on them by by t- television animation just
just sort of being about the the churning out, like I said, of material. And he returns to Disney in 1971 to work on some fucking bangers. Now, here's the thing. The people, he left such an impression during his two years as this fucking Yahoo kid that came in out of nowhere that like they were willing, like with open arms, they were happy to have this guy back. Yeah. Like, and he sh- he proved himself like immediately through the movies that you're about to describe. Uh, yeah. I didn't have Sword in the Stone written down here, but this is the era, the time period where he did Sword in the Stone. He did Sword in the Stone. Uh, Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, and The Rescuers, and also directed animation on Pete's Dragon. I mean, uh, like the movies I just listed, probably inherent in your childhood if you're around my age. I loved Robin Hood's. I always say Sword in the Stone's probably my favorite Disney film of all time. And I was telling Jake, you know, before we started, I always thought that Sword in the Stone had a relationship with the video game Dragon's Lair because I felt that the main character looked astonishingly like the, um, especially the older brother of Arthur in Sword in the Stone. And they just have such a resemblance. So I feel like he really got his, kind of honed his skills for that sort of fantasy look that he was building and then applied it to Dragon's Lair after that. There's like a house Disney style that still had kind of like uh, remained uh, through this era that, you know, Don Bluth had drawn hundreds upon thousands upon thousands of cells mm. of frames. I guess the cells are painted over by another, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, that, like, of course it's going to influence his art style, but there's like a, there's kind of a bitter pill to his triumphant return, and that is uh, it coincided with the death of Walt Disney and mm. ushered in what many Disney fans call the Dark Age of Disney, parentheses, the Bronze Age, because they still put out movies that people did like. Yeah. But there was a departure. Yeah, um, it kind of slowed down uh, in terms of just popping out these dynamos. Well, Um, I mean, Winnie the Pooh and The Rescuers and Fox and the Hound are all considered dark age films. And uh, those are all great movies. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's kind of a loose title. Right. But um, Walt Disney himself by this time, before his death, had pretty much abandoned uh, feature animation. It was Mm. incredibly time consuming and Mm -hmm. incredibly expensive. I don't think, yeah, we kind of talked about it, but the sketch stage, the uh, refining stage, the the in-between stage, the inking stage, the photography, like actually getting the inked lines onto an acetate page, the painting of the acetate page, the backgrounds, the photography, the special effects. Each individual frame has so much effort put into it. And if any one part of it goes wrong or if anything needs to be changed, that's another giant time and money commitment. Right. And the people making them are highly skilled and therefore highly paid. These aren't interns. Everyone involved is like a, a true professional class. Mm-hmm. It's not like nowadays where like if you watch a Marvel movie, there's like 18,000 like names of like weird like Bangladeshi people that they outsource them. <laughs> um, Walt Disney was like, I'm going to really focus on my magical reality parks where I reforge what right. it means to be alive and create right. a perfect uh, utopia. Mm. Uh, I honestly don't really care about animation anymore. This is something that Don Booth keeps pointing out as like proof that this was a darker time is they stopped inking the the frames. Uh, they started using literally Xerox machines to kind of like black out and like kind of, you know, basically up the contrast and print directly onto the cells. Right. And and, and uh, if you look at movies like 101 Dalmatians and the Aristocats, you can tell there's this scratchy quality, this like kind of ugly, hmm. unfinished energy which i actually think looks pretty cool because they were using this xerography process that gotcha. don bluth fucking 
hate it. And now the 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 film they're working on around that kind of uh, swirls uh, that that all this controversy is swirling around is the Fox and the Hound. And the people he's working with, we definitely need to bring in mm-hmm. two other key characters here in the whole Don Bluth. Bluth Co. situation um, that that we're going to move into here, to here with Don Bluth Productions. Uh, John Pomeroy, who started out as a Disney background artist in ni- in 1973, but quickly rose to animating Rabbit and Winnie the Pooh and Tigger Two. Uh, and then there's also Gary Goldman, who before getting in, into animation, Goldman served as an electronics technician in the U.S. Air Force from 62 to 67, then got his Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in life drawing and art history from the University of Hawaii, uh, which I don't understand why I didn't go there. Like, why I could have probably gone to college in Hawaii. Why didn't I just just apply? It's very far away from from Precious Mom. I'm just so stupid. I you feel can't like be that far away. I feel from like Precious I'm so Mom. dumb in my life. Have you ever thought about that? I, like how th- stupid you are in your life? No. Every <laughs> every decision that you know why Holden? Because every decision I made in this life led me right here to this moldy basement talking about cartoons with you. There you go. That's it. That's all I needed. I'm reinvigorated. So. Uh, Goldman starts out at Disney as an in-betweener for legendary Disney animator Frank Thomas on the movie Robin Hood. Now, we've talked about an in-betweener before, but Jake? Uh, The way it broke down is the highest kind of uh, animator was like a high-level role, the legendary Nine Old Men. And uh, you'd be assigned a character, like the performance of a character would be left to an individual animator. You know, so like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast was drawn by like one guy and like Ariel from... The Little Mermaid was drawn by one guy. And so the in-betweeners would take like the frames drawn by the head animator and kind of just do the kind of inconsequential just kind of motions between each pose. And Mm -hmm. that was to make the uh, cartoons look more smooth. Like there's a reason why feature animation looks so much more fluid than uh, television animation is because they have the time and manpower to actually draw between these keyframes. Yes, exactly. And uh, so Goldman starts working with Bluth on Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, as well as The Rescuers and Pete's Dragon. And uh, yeah, Uh, that's where he... You ever notice in The Rescuers how they don't color in the whites of the eyes on The Rescuers? I wanted to actually... Their their color is just of like the rest of their fur. Mm. Don Bluth fucking hated that <laughs> i i want i wanted to go back actually and watch the pennies, rescuers just pinching pennies yeah yeah and that drove him nuts he wanted to return to this old style and he decided to do that in almost secret with a film called banjo the woodpile cat while fox and the hound was going on he actually turned his garage into a studio bought secondhand equipment such as like uh kinescopes to look at dailies like this old ass animation stop motion camera desks that they had convinced Disney to buy them for off hours use. They started just using at home. Yeah, it was uh, Gary Goldman, Pomeroy and and Bluth uh, doing. Technically, it was like over the course of several years. Yes, they would work a full day at they would wake up at like 6 a.m. Start working at their job at Disney, finish at 6 p.m. and then run over to Bluth's garage where they could just be free to experiment and try out new techniques. And people started, other animators started finding out that they were doing this and were just so enthusiastic about the work that they were doing that they started showing up and helping out with the project. I mean, this is a labor of love, Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Cat, have you seen it? Uh, yes, I did watch Banjo the Woodpile Cat. Oh, I, it's wish, actually, I should have seen it. It's very, it. it's actually incredibly 
it's actually incredibly interesting because the the short, which is close to like 30 minutes. It is 27 minutes, yes. Uh, starts out like a kind of sloppy Disney short. Like the animation is very kind of standard looking for the time. Uh, the and it, like it basically looks like rejects from the Aristocats because it's a movie that Bluth and his uh, friends were working on. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the movie evolves, it gets more and more Bluthy because over the course of those past like couple of years, they were um, like learning new techniques and like experimenting more with style. And by the end, they have like this big lipped hobo cat doing like funny jazz dance routines while these like sexy cat dancers have uh, the Don Blue sparkles. And if you know what I'm talking about, the Don uh-huh. Blue sparkles. Those are done by uh, adding a separate layer in the photography process oh. where you kind of uh, set up like kind of an extra layer where you poke uh, pinpricks through a piece of black paper. Mm. And uh, you kind of take the the, the, uh, the the piece of film that you've already had the animation done and you shine a light under the pinpricks and you take another photo and it creates this like sparkle effect that's kind of coming out through the drawings. That's it's so fucking cool. And they get to that as well in Secret of Nim, which we're yeah. about to get to. Um they it's it's honestly a who's who of it's of the Don Bluth cliches like mm. everything from <laughs> the yeah I mentioned like the weird bubble lip that they gave uh, the characters uh, the scene where Banjo does this like sad like over exaggerated like despondent cry in a rainstorm <laughs> even this like very weird recurring theme where this innocent character is brought into a seedy dark urban landscape where there's all these like danger and unseemly characters out to get him. And he's like and over his head because he's not adapted to this world, which a lot of Don Bluth movies like absolutely hit those same notes. Right. If anything, watching Banjo, the woodpile cat is like, shotgunning everything that makes a Don Bluth movie directly into your brain. I want to I want to watch it really bad. And and while this is happening, while they're working on this over four years, uh, they're also working on The Fox and the Hound, like we already said, which is the last film to have the involvement of the nine old men. Oh, wait, men. but did you get to the little one? The small one. The yes, small yes, one. yes, the small one. Was that before Fox so and the Hound? Don Bluth was, uh, you know, he was basically the head of his own separate animation project. Uh-huh. He had these big ideas about what it means to make good animation, yeah. which uh, at this time during the Dark Ages, it was all about cutting corners and just trying to keep the studio functioning and fiscally like realizable uh, while their movies were kind of a, uh, you know, the animated movies were not even close to the money makers for the company. And on top of that, like he began favoring the people whose work he was growing more familiar with through Banjo. Uh, Maybe it's because working a second shift animating makes you a better animator. Yeah. But the fact is, is that he began to have this, his own little click and he would give assignments and real juicy parts to people in his clicks, which created this tension where in the studio, there was a group that were notoriously and derogatorily called the Bluthies. Ah. And everyone else in the studio hated the Bluthies. And there was also this sort of feeling of the old guard and the new guard, essentially, with the nine old men kind of on their way out. It's weird. It's I, I honestly have tried. I'm no Disney like historian, but. The dynamic at work is there was a whole new group of people from Cal Arts. This is the Cal Arts generation. People like John Lasseter and Brad Bird. Yeah, Brad Bird's also on. We, we, yeah. We've talked about Fox and the Hound in old episodes before because it is such a pivotal pivotal moment in all of these branching um, uh, animators and production companies. It's really <laughs> wild how much bullshit was going on but those behind guys the scenes in that bluthies. one movie. Yeah, they those were not Those guys bluthies. were still loyal to the remaining... Uh, so, okay, right. from what I understand... 
thank you for sticking with me. I have a very manic energy right now. From what I understand, you're doing great. Don Bluth was such a rabble rouser, but was such an undeniable talent and had such a crew behind him that he was advancing very quickly and supplanting the remaining legendary nine old men that were still left in the companies, people like Eric Larson specifically. Don Bluth got promoted and pushed out Eric Larson, who was this legendary guy that all these new younger CalArts people had fucking worked their asses off just to like glean information. They worshipped right. these nine old men, even though their work had been compromised, quote unquote, as Don Bluth believed. So what I'm trying to say, tensions were hot. There were like nasty yes. drawings of the Bluthies, like kind of posted in like coffee on, you know, walls. Like there was a legit, they were just like, they were, I don't know, they were like the Heathers. <laughs> they were the plastics of Disney animation at the time. So uh, the Bluthies, which would soon be called the Disney Defectors, uh, there were a few strikes that happened, some specific moments that seemed to really have propelled them to strike out on their own and get away from Disney. I think one of the first big ones was the issue uh, about Chief, the hound in Fox and the Hound, not dying in the movie, even though he does die in the novel by Art Stevens. And um, they, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Art, not not uh, Art Stevens didn't write the novel. Art Stevens was uh, the producer that protested, saying, "Geez, we never killed a main character in a Disney film, and we're not starting now." It was things like that that uh, really, really bummed. I think the Bluthies out a lot. Uh, also, um, producer Wolfgang Reitherman uh, adding a uh, musical number with two cranes singing "Scooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn Goo." which led to a shitload of fights, apparently. Just people pissed off, like, don't add this musical number. This is corny. This is stupid. Um, and Bluth and company really felt that the Rytherman and all those uh, guys were too stern and out of touch. And uh, on top of that, to add insult to injury was when they... Uh, took Banjo, this film that they poured so much love into, and took it to Disney during all of this going on. And uh, having Ron W. Miller, Disney's son-in-law and current president and CEO at the time, declined the offer to even view it. Uh, this apparently was, I think, the final strike. Uh, Goldman says about this time, about that moment specifically, that, pu that pulled the enthusiasm rug out from under us. We had hoped that the studio might like what we were doing and agree to buy the film and allow us to finish the short film in the studio, which would allow us to recoup what we had spent in terms of money and the many hours that we and the other members of the team had invested in the film. Uh, so... There you go. That was pretty much the moment uh, uh, that, that spurred it. And on Don Bluth's 42nd birthday, while working on Fox and the Hound, he and fellow animators John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman, as well as nine other Disney animators, left and started their own production studio. Uh, he quit on, I believe it was a Thursday, and like the suits were like, well, that was fucked up and weird, but okay. And then on that next Friday, everyone else left. Ah. Um, the story I heard was that... Um, I have an article right here from 1979 when this all went down. Mm. Bluth says, the content of our features will be different. We want to do stories with a little more insight into human life, a little more hope, like Walt did in Pinocchio and Snow White. Those movies had anti-death scenes, resurrection. Recent Disney movies have been episodic and just full of belly laughs. So uh, one of the stories from The Great Departure involves an animator named Linda Miller. 
Linda Miller is one of the creative forces behind, if you remember, a fucked up bird character in a Don Bluth movie, <laughs> like, a, like a fucked up bird. She was like the bird lady. <laughs> and uh, she had been working for Disney for years and she had stayed uh, past that initial Friday. And the uh, Disney company was like, Linda, honey, great to see you. Glad to. So you heard about this stuff. How would you like a promotion? And she immediately got up and joined Bluth also. Wow. Because this is another angle to it. Among the uh, defecting animators were Lorna Pomeroy, John Pomeroy's uh, wife, Heidi Goodell, Linda Miller, and Emily Giuliano. Bluth says, the women left out of a certain loyalty to me and because of the atmosphere at Disney is sometimes oppressive to women. For years, women have been assistant animators there, but they rarely get higher than that. Mm. So he had a whole entourage of like genuinely talented people and... That's like basically a third of the animation staff of the head animation staff for this movie. So the Fox and the Hound got delayed for six months. And uh, the Don Bluth Productions, uh, the very first film released under that title was, of course, Bandro the Woodpile Cat. This came out in 1979 and received the National Film Advisory Board Award for Excellence and the Golden Scroll Award from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. So it got some good acclaim, in other words, some good buzz. It wasn't like a huge explosive hit or anything like that, but it definitely proved themselves um, very quickly as soon as you know they kind of got struck out on their own i heard don blue again time is a misty veil that is hard to see through but uh don bluth in an interview was talking about how he actually shopped banjo around and uh one of the uh producers that eventually uh helped pay for a secreted nim was like we'll make yeah we'll make we'll make a movie with you you clearly know how to make this an animated singing feature animal movie and that was in Don Bluth's back pocket. Like ah. the departure and working on Secret of Nim were kind of a one-two punch. It wasn't- gotcha. Well, in between that, they got their first commissioned work on Xanadu. Oh, <laughs> I forgot about Xanadu. They did the animation sequence in Xanadu that I don't even know because I don't know if I've actually ever sat down and watched Xanadu. I've only gotten curious about Xanadu every now and again, and then I'll look up YouTube videos just a to marvel at it. Hairstyler in my hometown that had a fucked up weird Xanadu sign. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah it's just the whole movie is this disco musical and yes. there's like a random Don Blue scene where heavily rotoscope people are dancing together <laughs> and uh, but really the main event that, that we're coming up to is the secret of Nim. Now, uh, apparently, there was already, and and again, uh, I forgot to even mention this. This actually also feeds into their split from Disney. Definitely a part of it. This the origin story of how Nim came about, which was essentially that artist and writer Ken Anderson was loving a children's book released in 1971, which is titled Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. This novel relates the plight of a widowed field mouse, Mrs. Frisbee, who seeks the aid of a group of former laboratory rats and mice and rescuing her home from destruction by a farmer's plow, saving Timothy from pneumonia and the history of the rat's escape from the laboratory and development of a literate and technological society. This work was inspired by the creation of Dr. John B. Calhoun on mice and rat population dynamics at the National Institute of Mental Health, i.e. NIM, I-M-N-I-M-H, from the 1940s to the 1960s. Now, Anderson passes this book on to Bluth, who then pitches 
pitches it to Ritherman, who then says very cynically, we've already got a mouse. <laughs> and we've already done a mouse movie, which of course refers to Mickey and also the rescuers, which Bluth had worked on. So Bluth starts showing it to other staff and they all love it. And again, this is just sort of bubbling up that resentment for Disney and Ritherman. And by the way, I love that at Ritherman too, goes on to direct, I believe, Aristocats. And it came out, I believe, the same year or right around the same time as All Dogs Go to Heaven. So you've got the fancy cats from Ritherman versus the, like, street dogs from Bluth. There's something, uh, <laughs> the timeline of the Disney movies are a little bit off because uh, at this, by the point in the rivalry where Bluth is established, Disney started re-releasing movies just yes, to fuck with. Just to fuck with them So up. it's not that Aristocats came out the same time oh, okay. as they were made at the same Rather time. Rather had directed it back in the day yes. and then re-released it. Gotcha. Thank you for clarifying that because I was like, actually, I believe that that other fucking fancy cat uh uh what's the other oliver and company oliver and and company was direct same year i believe oh my god Oliver! fucking what are the it's just a weird year in it what are the kids like billy joel yeah so bizarre billy joel in there (laughs) so uh after starting don bluth productions they went to james l stewart a former disney exec who had started aurora productions at and at the request of bluth pomeroy and goldman they got the film rights to the book and offered a budget to Don Bluth Productions of $5.7 million with 30 months to complete the film. Now, I believe it's a $12 million budget at this time for a Disney film. I don't and like know that. double the time. I believe, I remember looking back at figures and it was like, this is less than half what normal feature films are are getting to be made. So they're already, they're, kind, they're working, they're hustling hard under dire straits. This production lasts for two years from 1980 to 1982 with the goal to bring, as I said before, feature animation back to its golden era, uh, which is generally thought to be the period from uh, 1928 to 1972, including Snow White, Pinocchio, but also including like the Looney Tunes and things like that. So um, they used very interesting but very laborious animation techniques and also wanted to have strong characters and stories. So, for example, as you said, rotoscoping, uh, uh, backlit animation, which you just talked about, um, having that sparkle in in the the Bluth films, different things like that. I love that they actually had to physically, like, poke holes. Mm -hmm. And just talking about the tactileness of what they were working with is so beautiful to me i i really do love that aspect of what uh blue don bluth and and co were doing uh one of the fucked up amazing things that they did for secret and nim is if you notice the movie has very like dark lighting there's a lot of like yes, mood in that shadow and fuck secret nim so good by the way can we, can we i love night, secret the nim. fucking great owl i feel like Nico watching it Demis. recently i had never seen it i don't think as a kid and so uh it was like a couple years ago i weirdly just got i think it was just like on netflix or something i weirdly just was like i need to watch this this looks really cool and i watched it and i was like this is so cool I, I just, the feel of it, it just felt, oh, it just has this hey, like, tangible fucking old feel to hey, it. Hey, Holden, can I share something way too intimate for uh, what should be a fun laugh time podcast? My body, my soul, everything in me wants to scream, no, no, Jake, for the fucking love of God, don't do this right now. Don't do this to me. Don't do this to the listeners. But as a professional podcast co-host, I'm going to say yes. 
It was fucking weird how they like gave Mrs. Frisbee like clothes. Like she had clothes, but yes. then like whenever it moved, she would just be buck naked underneath. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I was like, is that a naked lady? Does that count as a naked lady? <laughs> Five old, I feel like I'm seeing a naked lady. Five old gets naked for a second in American <laughs> Tale, and you're just like, that feels weird, yeah. <laughs> even though it's just a mouse. Anyways, we'll get to uh, Five Old. Hey, everybody, it's me, your bearded bruiser, Jake, here once again to talk about this week's sponsor, Keeps. Now, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. Uh, When I was a young man, I noticed that my hair started to thin, and it was really affecting my confidence. I didn't like going out. It really just put a damper on any time I had to make an appearance in the physical world. On the plus side, there were uh, effective treatments out there for people like me. On the downside, they were immensely expensive and a huge hassle to go to the doctor's office and then go to the pharmacy and then have them unlock everything. It was a nightmare. I honestly hated going through with that. If you had told me back then that there'd be a company that made this entire process effortlessly simple and entirely confidential, I would have wept with joy. And uh, that company is Keeps. Getting started with Keeps is so easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes. Just answer a few questions and snap some photos. A licensed doctor remotely reviews your information and then will recommend the right treatment for you. And you don't even have to leave your couch. You can even do it on your phone on the go. It's that effortless, that easy. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA approved hair loss products out there. Some of them you might have tried before, but you've never had them for this easy or this cheap. Keeps is only 10 to $35 a month. Plus, here's where we sweeten the deal. Uh, you can get your first month free. That's a great deal to keep your hair. There's no reason to put this off any longer. Stop hair loss today the easy way with Keeps. To receive your first month of hair loss treatment for free, go to keeps.com wizard. That's K-E-E-P-S dot wizard. And you will get actual FDA approved hair loss treatments at your doorstep. That's a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash wizard. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. Now, the sad thing is, uh, unfortunately, this summer was uh, kind of a clusterfuck of movies that would just blow Secret and Nim out of the water. Before we even get to that, really quickly, just 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 to get it across how much work went into this movie, how much fucking labor went in this movie for like nickels for the guys working on it, by the way. We've got a hundred in-house staff working on the film um, and the producers, which were of course Don Bluth, Goldman, and Pomeroy, they all had to mortgage their homes to raise $700,000 just to finish the film. Uh, uh, they, they had color palettes for every character for different lighting situations so for example mrs brigsby had 46 different color palettes for each of her different lighting situations which sounds completely insane goldman now says, those shitheads over at disney you know how they would accomplish how that would they accomplish that they would just put a colored gel over the frames and just paint it normally without having to spend all that time and money throw them off the top of the Empire State Building is what I say to that. Throw them off the top of the fucking Disney Castle is what uh, I would say. This another this is another huge bluthy thing that I feel like I have to, that I noticed when doing the research is he made this whole stink about how like it's not fair that we have to deny the glory of animation and, it, and the Disney producers were like, the glory of animation is so fucking time consuming and expensive. We can't do it. Yeah. And then Don Blues is like, fuck you guys. We're going glory of animation. And then this, even from moment one, it's like, 
fuck, this is so time-consuming and expensive. Yeah. Hope you don't mind that we can't pay you. They all had to suffer. And Goldman said he worked 110-hour weeks during the final six months of production. And then Nim comes out, and as you said, this is the summer. It is up against E.T., Poltergeist, Rocky Three, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, and so it was fucked. Yeah. Even movies that we've covered before, like The Thing, have been, and like Blade Runner, I think. And yeah, or Alien, I forget. The point is, E.T. fucked a lot of movies. Yeah, and, and it's so funny, too, because of where we're about to go with uh, Spielberg's involvement in the Don Bluth story, because it's like, Poltergeist, I believe, was produced, right, by Spielberg, mm-hmm. and then you have E.T., and you have, essentially, I think what happened was, Spielberg went to the movie theater and was like, what do I not have my hands on, <laughs> and then went and saw Secret of Nim, and then called Don Bluth, is mm. essentially what happened. I have a great quote from Bluth about, essentially, the fight uh, going on internally during this time, and how he felt about everything. He said, we will earn the right to stay in business. If we don't do it right, then we can't claim the right to stay in business, and if the Secret of Nim succeeds, then there will be another film. But even if we fail, we won't. That won't keep us from trying again to love what we do. Animation is a beautiful art form that is in danger of dying out. Every time someone produces an animated feature that fails, the whole animation industry dies a little bit more. Motherfucker! I added the motherfucker at the end, but I felt like it was kind of uh, worked. It was fucking metal as hell when she lifts the thing with the amulet power and just fucking red lasers shoot everywhere. <laughs> it's super cool. Now, they did add the amulet and the magicness mm-hmm. to the film. Uh, that was uh, an addition that actually, now that I think about it, I feel like it's more based in maybe the religious background of Bluth than anything else because this is a. This is a story about, you know, research, medical mm. research and and lab rats. And he couldn't help him. He had to add like a some magic spiritual kind of thing to it. But also was a symbol of her finding the power within herself. Either way, I think I'm fine with the amulet. I'm just saying the next thing that's about to happen is motherfucking Dragon's Lair. Motherfucker. 420. <laughs> um, 420 Dragon's Lair, by the way, was the, my uh, original AIM screen name. The uh, Dragon's Lair. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, Secret of Nim was fucking rad as hell. It was rad as hell, and the next rad as hell thing they wanted to work on was a Norwegian folktale entitled East of the Sun, West of the Moon. But, of course, due to Nim's moderate success, along with the industry-wide animation strike going on, oh, by the way, there was an industry-wide animation strike going on, Bluth had to file for bankruptcy. In fact, I think, is this where we start, Bluth starts his fucking big issues with um, uh, the union? The animation, the animators' union, because that is a sort of a big part of this whole story as well. I didn't get into that. with all that. Well, he it, it comes up more, uh, I believe, during maybe Land Before Time. We'll get there, but I think this is the start of it when he starts. He had a very adversarial role with the animators' union, which is uh, what causes him to end up in Ireland in a big way. But uh, we're not quite there yet. Right now, we're kind of in this part where they're in a weird in between stage and that's when a man named Rick Dyer hops into the scene. He is the president of Advanced Microcomputer Systems later RDI Video Systems would be the name of his company and and he has a concept inspired by the text game Adventure in which you try to make it out of a cave with treasure but instead of a text adventure he wanted to make a graphic 
version of that text adventure. You know, you know what we mean by that, right, people? You, you, you. Uh, it's all words, and it's like you walk into a room. There's, you know, there's a door in one end of the room. There's a bookcase, and then you can enter commands and push door. Yeah, push door. Cannot do. No do. No do. Pull door. Door become horny. <sighs> Fuck door. <laughs> door is open. <laughs> um, now Rick Dyer is really it's Rick Dyer like Don Bluth's name is all over uh like Dragon's Lair in terms of like the poster he owns the rights to the characters but it was Rick Dyer's dream of a fully interactive uh digital world in which you can like freely make choices within yes that he really just like like he's the unsung hero of Dragon's Lair uh, he just wanted so badly to live in a VR fantasy world, yeah. and the technology was not there. He the literally co- created a thing, a, a, a thing he called the fantasy machine, which slowly evolved from a computer that used paper tape with illustrations and text on it to utilizing a uh, video disc, and of course that would uh, turn into what Dragon's Lair was, which is a game on laser disc. Uh, and it, it was a game that came out around the time that the arcade scene was starting to struggle. Uh, they, they, they were there was starting to, to flail a little bit. And this was a hope, uh, an attempt to reinvigorate that scene. Don Bluth takes the job on a shoestring budget of $1.3 million, and it took seven months to complete. And this was as the Bluth Group, which consisted of Pomeroy, Goldman, and Dyer, because I believe Nim put them into bankruptcy. So they are, yeah, Bluth had to file for bankruptcy from Don Bluth Productions. So this is now the Bluth group. Still has Pomeroy and Goldman along with Dyer. And he's unable to afford models. The animators used Playboy magazines for their depiction of Princess Daphne. Specifically, I I love this story. Gary Goldman specifically uh, brought Bluth stacks of Playboys because he knew this like sweet Mormon child quote-unquote 43 year old man at this point yeah uh, wouldn't be able to like fully deliver on that va va voom energy (laughs) and fucking bluth took to it like a cat to its own shit (laughs) holy like daphne is fucking sex on paper there is i mean that's half the reason i feel like there's still dragon slayer fans yeah yeah and and uh they also they had to do they had to do their own voices for the characters because they didn't have enough money to afford actors and uh this was also followed up by a game called space ace which is a sci-fi version um they'll let you take different routes through the game and hey if you want to hear don blue's voice himself he supplied the voice of the villain borf i uh had the shitty snes port of that game Mm. and it is one of the, my most hated objects ah. in this world. Uh, also, while working on a Dragon's Lair sequel, though, the game industry crashes. That is t- around the time, man. They have some luck issues, the Bluth well, crew. So here's the thing is, so Dyer it- was dissatisfied with uh, how Space Ace and Dragon's Lair turned out. Mm. Because they were, they were really just about memorization and Twitch reflexes. Yes, that was Well, bullshit. in his dream, he wanted, like... You wanted to, people to exist in these worlds right. and like kind of make dis- informed decisions and like you know instead of like go through the door or get bitten by snakes no 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 he wanted people to like re- like his he honest to god talk there's a video on um, YouTube by H Bomber guy which is really great that talks about this history the kind of lost non Bluth history of Dragon Slayer mm. he tried to create his own home laser disc video game system using like crude voice commands like like shitty siri with a bulky headset um he didn't get it produced uh because it would cost six thousand dollars and um the fact is once you beat 
Dragon Slayer or once you've seen someone else beat it, that's all there is to yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. And, and the machines themselves were incredibly expensive and relied on physical laser discs, which if you've ever if you remember CDs got easily scratched, got easily gunked up, and were very hard to maintain. So though Dragon's Lair 2 the Time Warp did come out in 1991 and was a rare find in arcades, and you can actually download it today on your phone, uh, back in March 1, 1985, Bluth Group files for bankruptcy. That's two bankruptcies in the 80s for these guys. Uh, but luckily for them, Spielberg was a huge fan of Secret of Nim, and he hits up Don Bluth to work on American Tale. He said to Bluth, make me something pretty like you did in Nim. Make it beautiful. The, other, the thing was, though, that Spielberg had a lot to learn, a lot to learn about animation production. He was only a, a, a live-action yeah. film guy, and uh, this quote kind of explains it all. Before this, I had been a bottomless pit of appreciation for animated films without knowing what went into making them. At this point, I'm enlightened, but still can't believe it's so complicated. And uh, for example, to explain this, it's like if you add a two-minute scene to the film, that is dozens of people uh, and months of work. Whereas, you know, if you added a two-minute scene to a live-action film, maybe a day shoot, Something like that. You, you you don't even you can do the audio later in ADR. Yeah, it's like that low. Commitment. I mean, it's so simple. So Spielberg and Bluth worked together on script decisions. Uh, in Spielberg's original vision, the mice were just human-sized mice. Yes, which is eerily similar like to Robin Art Spiegelman's Hood. Art Spiegelman's mouse. Ah, yes. Literally, like Jews are mice and yeah. evil. Like that's right. I mean, they're Russian cats, but. Like, it's very weird. Whereas, though, this film got criticism for being kind of about that, but hiding the actual, you know, oppression. Whereas, you know, uh, Spiegelman's Mouse, they, yeah. like, confronted, you know, That was the so crux bluntly. of Ebert's review is, like, just yes. say Jews. Yeah, yeah. Why are you, why just fucking say Jews, you numbnuts? I'm Roger <laughs> Ebert. <laughs> I'm Roger Ebert. Like, he always signed off. I'm Roger Ebert. Uh, so, Don so Bluth would work with, I got a little I did get a little teary-eyed. It's because those children aren't trained singers, and you can hear the yes. tiny vocal cords yes. at the breaking. That's point. such a big deal. I think that Hell really. I'm glad you brought this up because I think that the having like real ch- children voice the the uh, the parts. There's this vulnerability there, and that having was something them, they did in banjo too. Yeah, it and weird. it's so beautiful, and and that song is so beautiful because they sound like vulnerable little kids. Oh, some people hate that about the movie. I love it. I mm-hmm. thought that that that's what got me teary eyed. I don't, I think if they like sang it like Frozen style, <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, whatever. And I didn't like cry during Frozen or anything, but that got me teared up that moment. It's beautiful, and I love that little bit about that. And even though I would say it gets a little too cutesy dootsy, like Land Before time feels so much more I don't know it feels so much more powerful because it does feel like there really are these little kids like lost trying to find this promised land anywho back to American Tale Bluth work is working with Amblin Entertainment which of course is Spielberg's production company and weirdly enough with the Sears marketing department uh, on the look of the film because this was heavily uh, backed by Sears, also they had to get the merchandising. With, man. They had a big deal with McDonald's. They had to figure out how to get more fucking money in into their game because that was the thing I think Bluth struggled with so much. And well, that's the weird catch twenty two of uh, the Bluth kind of. This is the thing that keeps happening in Bluth's career is his movies on opening day don't necessarily kill it that hard, but. Because he was, it was always such a work for hire where like this benevolent financer would kind of like save him at the last minute. Yeah. He would lose the rights to the yes. characters. And on VHS and on uh, merchandising, the, 
way more money was getting made that Bluth would never see a cent And then of. the great irony, the Bluth, I, I was going to bring this up. It comes into play more with really starting with American Tale. But the great irony, the fact this guy is trying to uh, harken back to the classic golden era of cartoon making, animation, and and uh, the, the strenuous work and the, the love of the craft. And yet all of his movies uh, after with American Tale on are all just, they keep churning out these shitty sequels straight to video well, because he didn't have any control over the licensing. I don't think he was very good with business in general. Well, here's, uh, he tells and this so, story. It's so cheap and it's out of his control and it's like his original property is just getting uh, uh, thro- brought, thrown After, through the ringer. After uh, Land Before Time, he was approached to do the sequel to American Tale, Five Goes West. Yes. And uh, the they wanted it for less money. Mm. And uh, Don Bluth, who worked in this business for so long and was intimately aware of the cost, was like, we literally can't do it for less money. This yeah. is not going to happen. And Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who worked on with Amblem and is now like, works at Disney, is the figurehead of the Star Wars franchise. Mm. Um, I hope I got her name right. Was like, you're done. We, we'll do this without you. Uh, ended up outsourcing it to a, like this hodgepodge of all these different animation studios and spent way more money than they would have ever spent <laughs> to just fucking pay Don Bluth to keep going. Uh, it's it's a nightmare. So Don Bluth for American Tale story, storyboarded the entire film, which was insane, and then would send them over to Spielberg. He'd usually bring them over uh, in person. He said, I, I often brought them over myself so that I could explain them. Stephen would get very excited by what he saw, and we'd edit the boards right there, adding more drawings or trimming some back and uh so uh, you know that process sounded great but the process that seemed to really uh really piss him off a lot and piss off the the bluth crew was having to get approval from both universal and amblin on everything on all of the dailies and this made it very difficult for them. Many scenes had to be cut out for time, such as the Mouskowitz's journey across Europe, uh, which is a scene in which they first meet Tiger and he gets stuck up in a tree. An upbeat song that Fievel was uh, planned to sing while imprisoned in the in the sweatshop and a scene that gave greater explanation of the changing of names at Ellis Island. All of these had to be cut. The movie's only, the movie's short. Land Before Time is an hour and 10 minutes, by the way. Mm-hmm. Land Before Time is like barely a movie. At the uh, by the way, and that's largely also due to the cuts he had to have, and this is going to lead up to the split between Bluth and Spielberg. Bluth also had to, this is what I was talking about before, had to battle with the union through production as he was getting union workers out to work on his non-union projects. So he was always a fight with them as he was trying to get literally union workers to like drop the union to come work with him, and so the union was pissed. Not only that, literally by this point, uh, because of just the unique ways that he had to struggle to get things financed he had a partner named morris sullivan who had kind of ties to the irish like uh, business community and so they moved a majority of their production to dublin uh which gave them a lot of new facilities and a lot of tax breaks but also it was a you know they had like if you wanted to work for don bluth you had to fucking get up and go to Ireland. But that was also to avoid the unions. Yeah. He did that largely. Like, they got a tax break, but it was also just so he could get away from the union. He actually didn't make a full break for Ireland until after An American Tale, specifically because they were working on a movie called An American Tale, and, ah. it, was, and it was just like, we can't do this 
not in America. Like, we have to at least half be in America while we work on this. Um, and this movie ends up being quite the success. Really the success Bluth, I think, was looking for up until now. It was, uh, uh, at the time of its domestic release, it became the highest grossing non-Disney produced animated feature at the time and even outdrew Disney's The Great Mouse Detective, released four months earlier in 1986. I also love that the they, they're like, we already have a mouse movie uh, and American Tales a mouse and Nim is rat and I just it almost felt like purposeful like they were just being like fuck you will make a bunch of mouse movies and then they of course make a damn mouse movie so it's just ridiculous I mean there's some about mice we just love them we can't get enough of them we'll fucking suck their dicks and we'll fucking hug them and we'll take them to the prom I'm starving yeah it's this is a low blood sugar episode (laughs) if you haven't been able to tell we're doing great Jake I honestly am excited (laughs) to eat or for the episode to come out both Now, the next film to come along is The Land Before Time. Now, during production of American Tale, they were already talking about the next project, and Spielberg wanted his own Bambi, but with dinosaurs. Uh, This is where George Lucas gets involved. Now, essentially what... Spielberg wanted an American Tale was his own version of oh um oh hi ho he wanted his own hi ho and that was a lot of what the somewhere out there was about he wanted his big classic animated musical number essentially that everybody knew and at home and they really achieved that in a lot of ways so now he wants his Bambi but he wants it with dinosaurs Lucas gets involved the original title is the Land Before Time Began and originally Spielberg and Lucas wanted no dialogue whatsoever but they ended up changing that would have been fascinating heavily inspired by bambi has actually incredibly small amounts of dialogue that's true and and uh also inspired by fantasia Mm -hmm. and its large uh lack of dialogue but uh they ended up adding dialogue in later on thinking they just really wanted to not turn off kids in any way these opening negotiations were taking so long that just to keep his uh studio like working they basically just started uh drawing the that uh wordless opening sequence yeah. Before they didn't even finish the script, just so they just so the right, the it. animators weren't just sitting around with their fucking inkwells up their ass. Well, they were also doing research, and I'm glad to read this because watching the movie last night, I was blown away at how like they just how they the decisions they made on how the dinosaurs move, what what it looked like back then. And how gross and wrinkly everything is. It's so detailed and it's so it just has a lot. It's very inspired. It's like very clearly was well researched. But and where were shows. the feathers holding? Where were the fucking feathers? That's Jake? what I want to know. Jake. And where was the breastly the breasty dinosaur <laughs> with giant breasts? I mean, it's. Don Bluth is usually pretty good about adding breasts to stuff. You're right. right. He was off his game. I don't get it. Anyways, they did extensive <laughs> just research. Littlefoot's mom with big old giant, just gigantors and little, <laughs> you know, and two like dead dogs pop out of yeah, them. Yeah. Do a musical number on a piano. Anyways. Extensive research had to be done, including visits to the Natural History Museums in New York City and L.A. and the Smithsonian in D.C. to get the look, the feel, what they were looking for. There were more than 600 background images made for the film. 19 scenes, though, did have to be cut from the final film. And that makes a lot of sense because, like I said, I was shocked to see that the movie was an hour and 10 minutes. Mm. Uh, I, 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 So it makes sense that 19 scenes had to be cut. But this was, all, this was largely in order to get the G rating that they were trying to get they also had to add that weird old man dinosaur that's like i know she's dead but don't get don't get too sad (laughs) uh and so they they yeah they got rid of the actual t-rex attack sequence if you will rewatch it it's sort of like i think it's done in shadow 
Yeah, it's done like in shadow, and then and then you just next time you see her, she just has a big chunk missing from her, and she's clearly dying, and it's very upsetting looking. Uh, so yeah, they got rid of that. They had to move some scenes around. This resulted in the continuity error that Lexi pointed out, which I thought was interesting that they actually had this in the uh, notes the next day when I was researching this. They had a continuity error of the T Rex having his right eye open after being blinded, oh. and Lexi was like, "Wait, that's a different T Rex because he has both of his eyes." Oh. I was like, "Oh, interesting." So uh, this was largely the reason, it seems, for the split between Bluth and Spielberg. The main reason being that Bluth really wanted his darker film, like he's known for, the thing that he does. And Spielberg, of course, being Spielberg, wanted a lighter approach, and they butted heads on this all throughout the movie. And so at the end of the day, I think Bluth wanted to walk away and do his own thing. John Pomeroy says about the film and working on it, it never came up to my full expectations, simply because it was a perfect opportunity to really showcase five disturbed personalities trying to work towards each other's mutual goal. They were rich characters but we never really got a chance to project that richness for sure I can get that is those characters do not feel like what he's trying to describe wanting to do with them you know what I mean they and, and, and there was some interesting stuff that there's some sort of comments about racism uh comments about spirituality going on in that film and it's a gorgeous movie I I really had I hadn't seen it in so long uh, I don't even know the last. I must have been such a young child. And how it, delicious do those fucking tree stars look to this ooh, day? Oh, so good, so good. And uh, yeah, it, it's 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 definitely a film that does not uh, that gives shows its audience respect. Like I said, it's child audience. It it gives them the respect to be able to deal with a tragic death and and these kinds of things we get now, com- almost commonplace in Pixar films and things like that. But this is really a big deal, a novel deal. We also got it before, and obviously in Bambi and things like that. But, but uh, still, the movie does fantastic. Yes, the does movie very does well. gangbusters, and in a in a final like fuck you. It beats Oliver and Company. Yes. Uh, why should I where? Uh, why should I'm Billy Joel? <laughs> hey kids, it's Billy Joel. Where you going? Don't look at the dinosaurs. Oh fuck, you kids like dinosaurs more than Billy Joel. I'm George Lucas, and kids like a dinosaur. I also like them and think they're pretty cool. Oh look, it's a lightsaber, and I am gonna make a bad Star Wars movie one day. <laughs> Uh, I loved Oliver and Company. I don't care what anyone says. I did too. Also, I liked a lot. Of, yeah, I want to rewatch that. I want to rewatch the list of Aristocats. Like a scarf. That's w- my dream. I want to rewatch that. I want to rewatch Aristocats. I'm sad I had to leave mid watch of All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is the next movie I'm about to talk about. Literally in the next sentence, I'm going to talk about so it. So Don Bluth gets a new, uh, a new backer, a company called Goldcrest, which is based out of Europe, and they're like fucking. Land Before Time, Money in the Bank, cartoons, yeah, 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 let's do this. We'll greenlight the next three movies. We'll greenlight them all. We and, got this. And hey, I'll tell you what, Mr. Bluth will also give you total autonomy. Uh, there's nothing that leads to great creations <laughs> more than uh, a bunch of money and f- no oversight. Absolute and complete and utter <laughs> autonomy. It really goes to show, based on all of our research, first of all, always work for the big company that inspired you to get into the business in the first place, but always be doing this side work off yeah. to the side that's your own thing that's always first of all do that thanks for the insider experience fuck word second of all the other thing is unfortunately you do need to have people (laughs) 
conf- uh, uh, that are challenging your ideas and a sort of essentially people that are there to argue with you in order to keep what you're doing a little bit restrained in order to make the thing great. And then once you don't have that, I will say though, I love All Dogs Go to Heaven, so I don't even know why I'm acting like his next movie is not going to be good. It's because just the movie. Go to Heaven is that. fucking Gonzo, man. It's great. It is. It, There's like a story where like a I know, consultant it's so was brought Reynolds, on. Like, uh, was a consultant was brought on to be like, all right, so what's this uh, dog movie about? And like Bluth, like literally couldn't summarize it <laughs> because it was so twisted and convoluted. So yes, Bluth had an no, idea. No, you don't understand. The orphan can talk to animals, so she can help him rig the rat races. No, no, the rat races. The dog's dead because of the magic watch. You got a magic watch. Fuck! What are we doing? So Bluth has an idea for the film around the time after Nim came out. Originally about a canine private eye and a short story, and it was actually supposed to only be a short story in an anthology film. And actually, he actually, 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 he the main character was designed specifically for Burt Reynolds. And the title, really, the idea and title came from a book that was read to Bluth's fourth grade class called All Dogs Go to Heaven. And so, therefore, he fought it's tooth and nail to title. keep that title. It's a, it's a, it's a really very good sticky title. title. And people were like, we don't want it. And he was like, we need to do it. And also, also, actually, 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 though, Jake, <coughs> mm-hmm. it was also inspired by the fact that Disney's highest grossing films at that time were Fox and the Hound, 101 Dalmatians, and Lady and the Tramp. So, again, it's like we got our dinosaur Bambi. We got our fucking hi-ho. Now we need our motherfucking Lady and the Tramp. We need to get this thing going right now. Fun, horny dogs. The children love them. So they cast Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise together. Dom DeLuise is the John Ratzenberger of Dom Bluth movies. Uh, I, I can't he believe we like haven't brought up Dom DeLuise yet, by in, the way. Uh, in uh, He was the sassy orange cat in America, the vegetarian cat in yeah, American Tail. He's in Nim. He's in Nim. Yeah, he's, he's in everything. He's the owl, I think, in Nim. He is, uh, by the way, can I just say I love Dom DeLuise like so much? He's the best. I love him so much. I love him. Do you need, you want, you want to see Dom DeLuise too and the great, I mean, you probably already watched this, but he, him and Men in Tights is one of my favorite, him doing fucking uh, 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 Brando and, and Robin Hood Men in Tights is like one of the funniest fucking things to me ever. It is so ludicrous. It is so stupid. I, he just does stupid so well. Like just, just fair. That's fair. And so also if I could have been, if I could pay a million dollars to go back in time to be in the recording studio with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise fucking riffing on All Dogs Go to Heaven. <laughs> oh my God, I would. I would take out a eighth mortgage. It would be, it would be such a good, apparently that, because uh, I should say, they recorded all of their dialogue in the studio together and they ad-libbed liberal and uh, uh, I just would have loved that. That would have been incredible. So just- you're telling me the dog runs a casino? Great. <laughs> this is it's a dog casino. <laughs> but he's dead. And the, he's going to hell. Their chemistry was so great because they had already been in film. Five- Carface. The bad guy is called Carface. Carface. They, they, Carface? Carface. Oh, my God. They, they had previously been in five films together, so they had such a great chemistry. Um, and, yeah, they, they, you know, and this time what's funny about... Bluth's situation getting away from Spielberg. Now it was Goldman and Pomeroy who were cutting seams, um, deeming them too intense and really kind of pushing back against Bluth wanting to make this dark, dark, dark. Um, unfortunately, Bluth had a 35mm print of the film with all of the cut scenes put back into them, the ones that were deemed like too dark for kids, and he wanted to release a director's cut, but the print was stolen from his locked storage room. What a fucking bummer! And now some crackhead probably has a fucking three. Uh, no, this was an. In, this is like the Ocean's Eleven of furries. This oh, okay. Is, 
Yiffle Sniff, Big Paw, <laughs> and Johnny 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 Nuzzles. I'm Johnny Wisecracks. <laughs> I'm Johnny Wisecracks. Meow. <laughs> Meow. Okay, so oh, the puns and that bandit now, gang. Unfortunately, uh, something terrible happened. I love how many times we've said unfortunately in this episode. Because it's career. <laughs> I know, right? It's so unfortunately, full of slings and arrows. After getting its ass embarrassed and spanked in front of the whole class by American Tale and Land Before Time, Walt Disney Animated Features. Um, Guys, I'm sorry. They finally got their shit together. They finally got their shit together with Little Mermaid, thus starting that Disney renaissance that we all know and love. And that is what All Dogs Go to Heaven had to compete with, which drew a lot of unfavorable criticisms for the film. uh, Because it is, like you said, all over the place and really convoluted. It has a lot of uh, style and energy, and there's a lot of fun about it. So is like a shit stain on the subway. (laughs) All right. I wouldn't say those are the similar things. I like All Dogs Go to Heaven. I thought it was a great movie. You are you're fucking a chaos demigod according to like a weird Germanic religion that's like been dead for a thousand oh, years. Oh, and side note, by the way, the ten year old girl who voices the little girl in the film, look up her Wikipedia. It's fucking sad as shit. No, but no, no. Look up the story that. of what happened to the voice of Ducky in Land Before Time. <laughs> that one's fine. That's the same I think it's the same one. Oh no. Yeah, it's the same one. It's the yeah. I don't. I don't really want to get into it because it's too much of a bummer. But just look it up. Yeah. The voice of uh, the the girl in Land Before Time and All Dogs Go to so Heaven. So this kind of oopsie doodle, this unfortunate um, uh, turn of events, uh, completely spooks the Goldcrest backers. Yes. Thus creating a nightmare crunch for the studio. A nightmare crunch, and I literally titled this in my notes "The Failure Years." And this all started with a little-known film called Rock a Doodle, based on a play called Chant Chanticleer. It was like by a fable. Edmund Ro- uh, Rostand. Oh, yeah. No, it was a play. It okay. premiered in Paris in 1910, and um, it was all farm animals, and it was like this cute kind of farm animal story about a, a rooster who believed he could uh, sing up the sun every day, and then actually that turns out to be true, and again. Again, though, like All Dogs Go to Heaven, it just is, it's all over the place. Rockadoodle is one of the most psychotropically just disturbing animated children's movies I've ever watched in my entire life. Well, I remember you, being a kid in the theater. Really? And genuinely I didn't watch being shaken to my core because the imagery and the uh, plot and the character designs were so unsettling and bad. And the, the way the plot progressed was also... Like it ends with like the fucking rooster becoming a comet in the sky engulfed in holy light. Jesus. It is, uh, the bad guy is this like weird, fat, fucked up owl wizard. Well, I mean, there's also a live action element because it was heavily inspired by Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, which we need to do a fucking episode on. We by absolutely the way. do. Then and can... also, though, the film keeps getting pushed back by financial hardships on their original distributor, and then because of competition, they had to keep pushing it back. Like, Not only that, but Goldcrest was so spooked and was so, like putting the hammer down so hard on them that they uh, put the movie through extensive uh, focus testing. Mm, yes, and that focus which... testing resulted in tons of edits. Yes. And if there's one thing we really just have to explain is that creating these movies was so time intensive and so labor intensive uh there's this weird there's this like female character i forgot her name but she basically looks like if princess daphne from uh dragon's lair and tweety bird created a weird fuck doll it's very unpleasant (laughs) to look at and you can tell in her scenes that they had to draw like 
fluff over what was supposed to be her ample bird cleavage. Mm, and yes. so there's this like wavy, hastily put together so weird. puff on this character the entire movie. And so the the idea was, all right, assholes, we did it. We tested it. People are going to like this movie. And um, nobody did. Nope, had very bad box office sales, and it forced Blue Studios into liquidation. And after that, a Hong Kong company, Media Assets, which uh, purchased Bluth's next three films. And those films were The Stinkers, as I refer to them, uh, Thumbelina, A Troll in Central Park, and The Pebble and the Penguin. Now, technically, more work had been finished on A Troll in Central Park but even at that time, they knew that this was not good. They knew they had a piece of shit on their hands. Yeah. Um, basically, the crunch that they had gone through after uh, All Dogs, basically, they were working with just like bare bones, shitty scripts. They were they just did not have any good stories. They just right. needed because Blue's main concern is he is paying this army of highly trained animators and he has to keep them moving. They have to keep drawing. Otherwise, he's just bleeding money. Right. So knowing this, they kind of shelved Troll in Central Park and was like, well, Thumbelina is more Disney-ish and yeah. hopefully that'll break us out of the slump. Uh, but Thumbelina is so bluthy. Yeah. It is so... Like, I don't... I never saw... I, all, they hired uh, Jody none Benson. None of these I saw. None of these I saw. They hired Jody Benson, who was the voice of Ariel, ah. to be like this perfect Disney princess. But she like moves and looks like this Don Bluth character. Was so, like who's just always moving and always like emoting in weird, exaggerated ways, and doesn't feel like she feels less like a cartoon character and more like this rotoscoped homunculus in my eyes. Mm. Uh, my fiance Marie loves the movie, ah. loves the music, genuinely believes that uh, the vocal performances and the songs are actually incredibly uh, just like pitch perfect classic melodies. I don't, I didn't see it, but it is like. So Don Bluthy. It yeah. is insane. It is. It's. I just couldn't watch it. It was really. I ugh, just eked me out. So these f- movies crash and burn. I don't even want to spend too Troll much more Central time Park on them. W- didn't even get a full release. Yeah. It was that like it's just not good. I remember that movie being like that looks bad. And Pebble and Pebble and the Penguin was. I uh, remember that movie's existence. That movie was slapped together at the last second. They had to outsource to like weird Hungarian animation studios. They just had to like they just. Just for the sake of like keeping the doors unlocked, they had to just crank that out. And it was so bad that Don Bluth uh, took his name off the director credit, but his name, but the name of the studio is still there. So they, the whole thing falls apart, and Goldman and Bluth uh, are, are, and Pomeroy are all, all set astray. And then the, the, actually, like, at least there is a bright side to this story, to the, to the way this story kind of finishes out here at the end. Kind of, because there's also Titan A, but it's, we'll get to that. Uh, Goldman and Bluth, the American a, idiot of Don <laughs> Bluth's career. A uh, weird bright point when yeah. you thought he was dead. Yes, exactly. They sign a long term deal with 20th Century Fox to get $100 million for an animation studio in Phoenix, Arizona, with a staff of 300 artists and technicians. And that is uh, where Anastasia. Was born a loose adaptation. If he can learn to do it. You can learn to do it. <laughs> I need There's to see. I, to it. I'm sure, I think I maybe saw it maybe forever ago, but oh, I want to. This is great. another one I really want to see uh, again. Of the Bluth movies that I like, scanned through and like tried to watch this week. Yeah. Uh, Anastasia is the one that I think holds up the best. A, uh, he finally got over himself and lets like computers do a lot of work for coloring and yeah. like it really helps streamline the process it doesn't have as much of that like 
overly animated, uh, mechanical, just like ink on the on the screen for the sake of like ink uh, energy about it. The character designs are toned way down. Like Anastasia does not look like a standard uh, Bluth girl as much as his other ones. Right. She kind of has a more like uh, appealing, like modern design. Fucking Christopher Lloyd as Rasputin is yeah. great. And he, Res, this, this is my favorite. Rasputin has a uh, big evil guy song called In the Dark of the Night that I fucking love. Awesome. And it's uh, it's like almost note for note, like be prepared from Lion King because uh, Christopher Lloyd's singing stand-in huh. was Jim Cummings, who was Jeremy Irons' singing stand-in. Oh, wow. Jim Cummings also legendary voice actor man um, but that whole cast meg ryan john cusack meg ryan Kelsey also kills Grammer, it. john cusack kills it hank azaria angela lansbury it is a killer fucking cast it is a loose adaptation of the legend of grand duchess anastasia nikolaevna of russia who escaped the execution of their family so a perfect dark palette for him for bluth i mean and they it's took a also, lot of finagling to like tone it down yeah, a little bit it's also based on a play that fox made into a film back in the day in 1956 entitled Marcel Moret. So that's um It was actually Bluth was handed a literal pile of uh properties that Fox owned the rights to. Yes, and that's the one he picked. He could have done he, he could have done My Fair Lady or King and yeah. I, but he was just he felt like he couldn't recapture the magic and and it wise of him to do so. Um, uh Ghostbusters. So uh And another it's this movie like he actually I feel like takes some lessons from uh, what Disney had been doing with their princess movies. It feels like if you had replaced the Fox logo with a Disney logo, there are people who think Anastasia is a Disney princess to yeah. this day. Well, she kind of is now because Disney acquired. Oh, fuck. I didn't even think Fox. about that. So she actually, I believe, is now in canon with the Disney princesses. That would be, I mean, if, if, oh man. I don't know how much they promote that but like I think that she now is technically shoved in with the rest um, of them the one thing I will say about Anis actually no no we'll go on to the next movie uh, where yeah. I will go on my weird rant uh, okay great the next movie uh, before Jake goes on his weird rant to finish out the episode is Titan AE which was essentially the final nail in the coffin for Bluth. It was originally to be a live-action sci-fi film at Fox, and it was in development since 1998. Fox made Titanic, and Titanic was their biggest hit. Yes. So what'll be bi- what could possibly be bigger than Titanic in space? The script stayed in development hell until the chairman of Fox at the time gave the script to Bluth and Goldman, and essentially they didn't have anything else for Fox Animation to do, so it w- they kind of had to make Titan AE. Like, there was no real wiggling out of it for, for them. They, 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 it seems like they happily took the project on anyways, but that it was kind of like, you do this or the whole thing gets shut down. So If you, th- if you listen back to our Iron Giant episode... If you want to hear just how like badly marketed an animated movie can be, yeah, Titan AE is a movie for nobody. Yeah, it is like hard sci-fi. Um, there's no musical like elements to it except like butt rock montages, <laughs> like literal like like uh, like Godsmack. I think is in there. It's fucking like real like to space and in space now. Watch out for the Google Clarks. <laughs> like it's real fucking discordant. It's not kiddie. It, it like it looks violent and like 
it doesn't appeal it was to compared kids. to anime of the time and it's being so dark and edgy you well, know it was uh there was a treatment or at least uh, at least two nerd icons touched the script and that was joss whedon and ben edland who mm, you should know as yes. the creator of the tick uh-huh. and uh, a huge creative force on the venture brothers Another episode we'll have to do at some point it's just fucking bad it's just but also during the time in, in 1999 there were severe cutbacks for fox animation they had to lay off uh, over 300 animation staff. Uh, there was just, while they still had to get the movie out. While they still had to get the movie out. So again, it's it's arguably partially, you know, the fault of the crumbling studio, just like it was before with Goldman and everything. And 10 days after the film's release, Fox Animation Studios were officially closed down on June 26, 2000. Now, uh, the main character is uh, this is this archetype that Bluth forever has been drawing. And it's this like floppy haired, square jawed guy that I am so fucking sick of. <laughs> Literally, like if I'm describing him, he has like the Nick Carter hair and like a weird like kind of square nose. It's Dimitri from Anastasia. Uh-huh. It's like it's every fucking male character that Don Bluth draws. And he's like, I get over this, man. It's so weird. In fact, like it's just so like iconic that like the scissor sisters made a music video with don bluth yes. like years later that was just about this don bluth guy being a don bluth guy it's <laughs> it's it's oh oh god it's like every 90s boy it's why i don't know why he's obsessed with this one character archetype well sometimes you just get obsessed with like one thing you know what i mean an artist will paint a million renditions of he the literally same thing, painted a million renditions yeah. of this one guy because like he's picasso. an animator he's like picasso and it's not a compelling character it's not an appealing <laughs> design well i love land before time yeah it was and- good <laughs> it was- oh so okay uh bitter pill of irony okay. just like really just yeah. like pour yourself a dry red wine uh Tiny uh, was such a disaster, but it relied heavily on CG sequences yes. for a lot of the aliens and a lot of the spaceships and even like space suits. There's like a lot of scenes where a CG person in a spacesuit will have just a weird shitty Don Bluth animated head kind of floating mm. inside of it. One of the key 3D animation studios that uh, worked on Tiny was Blue Sky, who uh, eventually like because working with them was so much easier than Don Bluth, uh, they got picked up to create Ice Age. Ah, yes. And uh, the same year that Tiny E fell flat on its face, a little movie uh, called Toy Story excelled. Yes. And, and so unwittingly, the advent of unwittingly, animation. the man who wanted more than anything to preserve 2D hand-drawn flat animation was the man who Put the final nail in the coffin for it. So there you go. Where's Don Bluth today? Well, after a failed Kickstarter campaign to raise money for a feature-length film of Dragon's Lair, they were able to successfully raise over $728,000 to make it on Indiegogo as of February 2018. So I think they're hard at work on a Dragon's Lair film, which I'm totally down to watch. The, that uh, sounds like a lot of fun, actually. The last I heard, the, the Indiegogo is specifically to create a sizzle reel, kind of like mm, a, a hand-drawn short. Because that's, that, that's not enough money to make a feature. Yeah. Like, because yeah. they uh they're uh, in interviews around this time bluth was just adamant 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 that he needed a good script he had learned his lessons and that the story is what's more imp- like the visuals yeah. are key to carrying the story and without you- a good story you're just fucking making pebble on the penguin exactly so uh if you'd like to check out how to learn his ways he wrote a couple of books the art of the storyboard and the art of animated drawing jake i think that's our episode on don bluth i'm gonna go ahead and say it right now 
patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. If you'd like weekly bonus content, such as, for instance, recently, uh, Lexi and I sat down and rewatched all of Neon Genesis Evangelion, and she like totally fell in love with it, and we are about to record our second episode, because tonight, I believe I will be going home and watching the final film, End of Evangelion, with her, and then we'll get all of her thoughts, but we're at the point, she finally broke into what Neon Genesis is all about. We, we had to pause an episode like eight times to have philosophical conversations, so that's when you know you really like you, you have the Neon Genesis has taken hold of your brain and really elevated uh, your whole fucking bullshit. So that's kind of fun. It's about how adult responsibilities can be overwhelming and you get depressed when you're a teen. I mean, definitely it's about that. And a million other things. Also, you can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. You can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and uncover the mystery that is dropout does not exist.com. Fuck yeah, bro. Take care, everybody. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com.